0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. The fighting between Israel and Hamas triggered accusations of war crimes on both sides. We'll look at what the law says. And with the worst of the third wave behind us, one doctor warns that the fourth wave of COVID-19 will be rehabilitation. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A Canadian study is fueling the theory that Alzheimer's may be at least in part an autoimmune disorder. Researchers at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital say it could be an illness like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, triggered by patients' immune systems turning inward and attacking healthy cells. It's a largely overlooked hypothesis, but one that could open up new treatments. Using sophisticated lab techniques, the team found strong evidence in Alzheimer's sufferers of several autoantibodies that bind to brain-specific proteins. Alzheimer's costs the healthcare care system and the economy more broadly $10.4 billion annually, and it afflicts half a million Canadians. Connecting on Zoom could help older people stave off dementia. A new study of more than 11,000 older adults finds talking on video conference services during the pandemic helped maintain long-term memory, and elderly people who often use these online tools showed less decline in memory than those who didn't. And the participants who only used traditional face-to-face communication showed more signs of cognitive decline than those who use technology to keep in touch with friends and family. The researchers at the University of West London say the findings show the extent of how technology can help sustain relationships and overcome social isolation. I'm
2: a survivor of the Tulsa race massacre. Two weeks ago, I celebrated my 107 birthday.
1: Viola Fletcher was just seven when a white mob descended on her all-black neighborhood in a murderous rage in 1921. It was called the Tulsa Race Massacre. Now the centenarian wants justice and appeared before Congress this week to push for reparations for one of the worst episodes of racial violence in U.S. history that left more than 300 black people dead and 10,000 homeless. The massacre marks its 100th anniversary this month. Viola, one of the last living survivors of the massacre, says all these years later, she still sees the violence in her mind. He's probably one of the sharpest residents here. Um, his memory is amazing for an 111-year-old. Australia's oldest ever man is sharing his secrets for a long life, including eating chicken brains. Dexter Kruger, a former rancher and vet, is 111 years and 124 days old and says the poultry delicacy has contributed to his longevity. He lives in a Queensland nursing home and he's writing his autobiography. I'm Libby Snymer and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The term war crimes has been thrown around a lot amid the fighting between Israel and Hamas. There are laws of war and armed conflict. I turn to Janice Stein, an expert in Middle East studies and conflict management and founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs. Laws of war
2: do not make war illegal. They set rules for the appropriate
1: conduct of war. When were they and where were they formulated?
2: There's an international legal scholar who is famous among a very small group of people, Grotius, in Europe in the 18th century. By then, the rules were codified. After that, a body of law develops around how do you behave during war? Uh, are there rules you have to follow? That's The second body of law, and then there's a third body of law, which is humanitarian law, which is even in the midst of ferocious fighting, what obligations do both sides have to respect innocent civilians and to try to preserve life?
1: We have Hamas firing rockets at civilian populations indiscriminately. Is that a war crime? Yes. So one of the undisputed
2: principles of law during war, you cannot deliberately target civilians for no military purpose. Targeting civilian communities with missiles when there is no military asset present in their midst is a war crime.
1: Israel, on the other hand, has targeted buildings that have civilians in them, but they're saying that they were also used for military purposes, that it was either Hamas headquarters or they had rocket launchers there or whatever. Is that a war crime?
2: So that's where the argument becomes much more difficult. Let me just take one step back, Libby, to make a comment which I know is going to surprise many listeners, but bear with me. The decision about whether something is a war crime or not is not related to numbers of civilians that are either injured or killed. Now that's difficult for people. <laughs> to hear because intuitively in the midst of a war we count the numbers on both sides of a conflict and if the numbers appear wildly disproportionate there's an assumption that there's war crimes in fact that's not the case. War crimes are decided by the intent of a person of the army that is committing the attack and that's fundamentally subjective, because none of us can get inside anybody else's heads, which is what makes these judgments so controversial. So the fact that there are far more Palestinians killed than there are Israelis killed tells us not very much about whether war crimes have been committed by either side, frankly. If you attack a site in which there is a military asset embedded in the midst of a civilian population, you have to make the following judgments. It's not enough to say there's a, there is a military asset uh, embedded in a village, for example. Here's the second judgment you have to make, and you'll see how this can be so subjective. It's called the law of proportionality. Is are the number of civilians that you are likely to kill in order to take out that military asset proportional to the military benefit from taking out that asset. And every commander in an army is required to make that judgment before launching an attack. To take two examples in the last week, if there are headquarters of tunnels and rocket launchers that are embedded in the midst of civilian neighborhoods. Israeli commanders will argue that the benefit of taking those out is in fact proportional to the number of civilians that may be killed in the attack, especially since those civilians are usually, but not always, given warnings in advance that the attack will occur.
1: Is it a war crime to, in the first place, embed those military assets in a civilian building.
2: No. War crimes occur during the context of war. It is not consistent with international humanitarian law to use human shields. But it is not a war crime to embed military assets amidst civilian population. And again, looking at the local conditions and how crowded Gaza is, it would be virtually impossible not to embed military assets amid civilian population.
1: Are all of these laws and rules, are they relevant in the current context in modern situation? There is a heated debate among international legal scholars about
2: whether the laws of war need to be updated to take account of the kinds of wars that have been fought in the last fifty years. We don't have, fortunately, wars between two huge armies with tanks that are fighting each other in an empty battlefield space. There's almost none in the last 45 years have been fought like that. But international law moves very, very slowly. It takes years to update and to codify. And so the process is very slow. But beyond that, Libby, some of the issues you've just raised, there's no consensus. These are hard issues. And that's partly why, as you said at the beginning, this language is used, frankly, in a very sloppy way by protagonists on both sides and by a lot of the press who doesn't really understand, one, how important these distinctions are, and secondly, how subjective they are and, therefore, the the depths of the arguments that go on.
1: Janice Stein, thank you so much for that. That was really interesting. Thank you, Libby. That was Janice Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a doctor warns about the coming fourth wave rehabilitation.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: What will happen to COVID patients who leave the ICU with long term side effects of the illness? Dr. Raphael Rush is Clinical Director of Complex and Continuing Care at the Salvation Army Toronto Grace Hospital. He says their recovery will require many more resources, and he's warning that rehabilitation could become the fourth wave. We're all focused on what's happening with COVID now, but you're saying that we have to look ahead to another problem that will result from it.
3: That's exactly right, Libby. As a doctor, I work both in the acute care setting where much of the action has been, especially over the past month, but also in the rehab setting where I care for patients who are recovering from their acute illnesses. Over the past month especially, the number of COVID patients who we've been seeing has skyrocketed. And I described in the essay, these patients are often younger and sicker. What that means is that uh, it's creating a huge demand for for rehab services that have remained essentially fixed over time, year after year, both on the inpatient side and when they leave on the outpatient side as well.
1: You cite a study that said that fewer than half of COVID patients who have been in intensive care leave the hospital fully independent. Can you tell me a little bit more about that study?
3: That was a study that looked at 118 patients who received some sort of additional support to help them breathe as a result of their COVID, which is one of the major reasons why patients with COVID get admitted to ICU. And as it's so common with other diseases, not just COVID, many of the patients, although they left hospital, still left with some sort of long-term adaptation. In that study, about Almost a quarter left the hospital with a cane or with a walker when they hadn't before. Half left with some kind of medical equipment that they needed to live back at home, even though over 94% of those patients were totally independent before they came to hospital.
1: Where was that study from?
3: It was published in the uh, Journal of Intensive Care at the end of March.
1: Are you seeing the same kind of numbers here where something like more than half need rehabilitation?
3: It's hard to give an exact number. as a, We're still collecting the numbers ourselves, but that seems roughly correct. And that it doesn't even take into account many patients who are discharged from hospital but still leave with lingering after effects. In that study, for example, many patients, although they didn't need any sort of inpatient rehab, after they left hospital, after they left intensive care, more than half of them still went home on oxygen for a while afterward. Many patients, as we've seen, suffer after effects that last many months or now we're beginning to see even years after their acute illness.
1: What are some of the things that they would need that is in short supply or not available now? The biggest
3: shortage right now is a qualified staff to take care of these patients many folks who are recovering from COVID really benefit from working with trained therapists, even if they're not necessarily that experienced with COVID. Although, unfortunately, at this point, I think everyone who works in the healthcare system is becoming more experienced working with trained physical therapists, occupational therapists, respiratory therapists can really make a difference in people's quality of life. In addition, many patients have to adjust to different levels of independence when they leave, at least for a little while. At least at our hospital, having the support of a social worker or uh, other mental health care workers can really make a huge difference in people's quality of life.
1: Is there hospital time? I don't know how that you allocate. I know that sometimes you're given time with, with an occupational therapist, but is the time available or is it just a question of staff or is, are the hospitals able to accommodate?
3: That's a great point as well. Many people benefit from longer stays in the hospital. Right now, there's, of course, pressure on all hospitals, I think, to get patients home as quickly as possible. Some patients do, though, end up needing longer than you'd expect, they may need months where other patients might require weeks. That's especially true in the sickest of the sick, those patients who come to us with feeding tubes, who still require long-term oxygen, or in some cases, even still require ventilators when they begin their rehabilitation. Those patients have a very long road ahead of them. And unfortunately, many months of it will occur in a rehab institution, in a hospital.
1: So as a system, what are you advocating for? What do you want to see happen? I'd like to see
3: three things happen.
1: One is, in the
3: short term, there's going to be a need for more rehab beds, especially to support those patients who need a longer stay before they can return home functionally independent in any sense of the word. The second is that I think there's a huge epidemic that's only just now being recognized with patients who are still recovering and still suffering at home. And I think that up until now, there's been a huge focus on rehabilitating people while they're still in hospital. I think that going forward, we're going to have to really look at how we can best support people who've already gone home, but still need a lot of help. And that may come in the form of telemedicine or in the form of home visits. And it's going to require multidisciplinary teams, not just doctors, but therapists and social workers. And because we're helping people transition to really new kinds of identities, maybe even other folks as well. And finally, I think that we're going to have to invest a lot in the research over the next few years to discover what the lasting effects of this illness really are and what the best ways are to help people recover from its, from its effects. Just as we've seen in previous epidemics, just because the disease goes away doesn't mean it disappears for those who survive it. Survivors have to deal with the aftereffects of their condition for the rest of their lives. And we as healthcare workers and governments have to commit to supporting people for as long as it takes.
1: Dr. Raphael Rush, thank you so much for this.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That was Dr. Raphael Rush of the Salvation Army Toronto Grace Hospital. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air,